0: One in 10 TSA screeners called in sick over the weekend. That's up to three times the normal percentage. According to the agency itself, many employees are saying they just can't go on working without pay.
2: The president offering up protections for DACA recipients in exchange for border wall funding. But Democrats are refusing to budge.
0: Border security, DACA, TPS, and many other things. Straightforward fair, reasonable, and common sense, with lots of compliments.
1: Hello from Los Angeles, California. I'm Leon Krause. Welcome to Trumpcast. Let me ask you, what makes a good politician? I would suggest that the key to being a successful politician is not to win every fight, but to find a way to avoid outright defeat. In other words, Political talent is the ability to stay away from situations in which there is no other solution but to take a beating, losing everything and gaining nothing. If this is true, when future historians try to explain the final days of 2018 and these first few weeks of 2019, the first conclusion they will reach is that Donald Trump, this so-called legendary dealmaker, actually did not know how to play the game at all. Or at least he didn't when the complexity of the game proved overwhelming. The government shutdown has, in my opinion, revealed the president's dramatic limitations as a politician. By extending the shutdown for almost a month, Trump has shown an absolute lack of diplomatic imagination and, well, frankly, has confirmed the fears of those who ridicule him as a sort of child. Who governs by temper tantrum, a man incapable of finding common ground, even if evidence and reality both suggest there's no other way out of crisis. In what has to be the most absurd outburst in recent American history, Donald Trump, this master deal maker of television myth, has locked himself inside a trap of his own making without the slightest idea of how to get out of it. And it has cost him dearly. The president's approval rating has fallen below 40%. 55% of Americans blame him for the shutdown. Donald Trump has lost this fight. A fight he chose to start without, again, any idea of how to finish it, much less win it. But if Trump's overall political fortunes are in decline, the fate of the nativist rhetoric he helped ignite from the very beginning of his campaign for the Republican nomination might, sadly, be facing better odds. Just as polling revealed the depth of Trump's unpopularity during the shutdown, other figures have begun to suggest the number of Americans who support building Trump's border wall, the president's pointless campaign promise, has actually increased. In a recent ABC Washington Post poll, the number of those who support the idea of this border wall is now 42%, an eight-point jump From just a year ago, eight points. The people who strongly oppose the wall has fallen 14 points to 38% from 52%. 75% of Republicans currently say that the biggest problem the country faces is illegal immigration. Not income disparity, not inequality, not gun violence, not drug addiction, but actually illegal immigration. 75 percent, three out of four Republicans, say that illegal immigration is the biggest problem this country faces. Now, if Trump's nativist message is indeed gaining ground, Democrats face an interesting challenge. How best to deal with immigration when the issue takes center stage, as I think it surely will, during the party's primaries, and more importantly, during the 2020 presidential election itself. What ideas should the party bring to the table other than a resounding rebuttal of Donald Trump's punitive machine that we've seen? Is there a particular politician within the Democratic Party who could be the ideal messenger on the issue for the Democratic ticket? Should the party stick to its progressive ideals on immigration, or should it move to the center to try and appeal to that segment of the electorate that seems concerned about border security. Is there any point in trying to convince them or should the Democratic Party give up and focus solely on its own coalition? These are important, I would even say urgent questions, even if we are almost two years away from the election. We have a wonderful guest to try and get some answers for us. But first, let me extend an invitation for our listeners especially on the West Coast. We're going to be doing a live show in Los Angeles, in Los Angeles, California, on February 7th. I will be joining Virginia Heffernan and Jamel Bowie and a great surprise guest, so please, please come join us. The info is at slate.com live. It's going to be, believe me, California fun. And now the tweets.
0: Wow, just heard that my poll numbers with Hispanics has gone up 19% to 50%. That is because they know the border issue better than anyone, and they want security, which can only be gotten with a wall. Nancy Pelosi has behaved so irrationally and has gone so far to the left that she has now officially become a radical Democrat. She is so petrified of the lefties in her party that she has lost control. And, by the way, clean up the streets in San Francisco. the disgusting. Nancy, I'm still thinking about the State of the Union speech. There are so many options, including doing it as per your written offer. Made during the shutdown. Security is no problem. And my written acceptance. While a contract is a contract, I'll get back to you soon. No, Amnesty is not part of my offer. It is a three-year extension of DACA. Amnesty will be used on a much bigger deal. Whether on immigration or something else, likewise, there will be no big push to remove the 11 million plus people here illegally. But be careful, Nancy. Be careful and try staying in your house. Large parts of the country are suffering from tremendous amounts of snow and near record-setting cold. Amazing how big this system is. Wouldn't be bad to have a little of the good old-fashioned global warming now.
1: Simon Rosenberg leads a center-left think tank called NDN and has been a thought leader on immigration for over 15 years. Simon, welcome to Trumpcast. Great to have you with us. It's great to be here, Leon. First, I would like to go back a bit. For at least two decades, Democrats have been working towards comprehensive immigration reform, while Republicans have been trying to resist it and, in many cases, actively work against it. I don't believe, I do not believe both parties are equally responsible for the lack of progress on the issue. I think that's just a lie. Still, I think you would agree, Simon, that the way the Democratic Party has approached immigration has been also a bit controversial. Let me begin with Barack Obama. Obama was severely criticized for not using the majority he had in Congress at the beginning of his first term to pass immigration reform, which he had indeed promised during the campaign. Then pro-immigrant groups labeled him the deporter-in-chief after Obama put in place severe punitive measures that lasted at least two full years of his first term. Then he changed gears and it was different. But in hindsight, what do you make of the way Obama handled immigration at first?
2: Well, there's no question that he should have tried to pass it in 2009 and 2010. As he promised, and I think part of what happened is that I think the administration was naive, to be honest, in those early days. This was a very well-intentioned and, frankly, a very successful presidency, I think, on balance. But in those early days, I think they became overwhelmed by two things. The economic and fiscal crisis they inherited from President Bush was far more severe and debilitating, I think, than they had anticipated And second of all, that the debate around health care lasted much longer and was also more debilitating than they had anticipated. And those two things basically squeezed the window for immigration reform. I was involved in there, in meetings in the White House back in those days, and there were those of us who believed we could do one more thing. But it just, I think there was a miscalculation in some ways by the administration about how hard those first two years were going to be. And the immigration reform effort was sacrificed, I think, not intentionally, by the way. I mean, everyone... The president really wanted to do it. The staff really wanted to do it. I think there just became a pragmatic decision that they weren't going to be able to get it through given Mm -hmm. all the other struggles they were having legislatively.
1: One clear lesson I think that the Democratic Party probably should have learned is that at least on this issue, it's impossible to get any concessions from the Republican Party or at least this version of the Republican Party. Even after you show you're willing to unleash the country's deportation machine and risk the wrath of many, if not all, pro-immigrant groups and also important voices in Hispanic media, even after all that, Obama got nothing from Republicans on immigration. Did Obama and his advisors, you think, make a mistake by taking such a hard line on immigration enforcement at first?
2: No, and I don't really believe, I'm not in the camp that Obama did take a hard line on immigration, frankly. My own belief is that the system is overloaded. There are too many people in the system. The system was never, the judicial system, all the various parts of it were never, it was never contemplated to have this many undocumented immigrants in the United States. And so... Our version of reform and how we were going to sort of clear the backlog, the court backlog, and all the other challenges that we have with the large undocumented population in the U.S. was to legalize them right and and that was our version of reform and when in 2011 we realized that that was not going to happen that we had missed the window the republicans were now in charge of the house that we needed to do something about the system and what obama did was i think he made very smart changes in the immigration system that he inherited from bush one was that he prioritized the deportation of both recent border crossers and violent criminals which was a smart you know and this was based on academic analysis and huge meetings that happened inside the White House and DHS. And we took this deportation machine that he had inherited and focused it on the most significant problems in the system, right? The violent criminals, the recent border crossers. It essentially exempted 10 million people, 10 million undocumented immigrants from the fear of deportation. And one of the reasons we were able to do DACA in 2012 was because he had created an intellectual predicate by saying, look, if we're moving some people to the front of the line for deportation, we can move other people to the back of the line. And so I dispute many of my colleagues and friends who I work with all the time about whether or not Obama, I don't think he ratcheted up the system or made it more hard line. I think he made it smarter and better and frankly relieved the threat of deportation over almost every undocumented immigrant in the United States. However, we're going to be debating that a long time. I, I do want to say one other thing, Leon, is that remember that in 2013 – we did pass immigration reform through the Senate. And it was the House Republicans uh, who blocked it in 2006, w- blocked it again in 2014. And so we did make another effort at it in the second term. Um, and, and it was rebuffed by many of the same people who are now running immigration policy
1: for Donald Trump. Now, a number of deportations did increase, at least at first. Objectively, Simon, is the deporter-in-chief label unfair? I think it's
2: incredibly unfair, and the reason why is that the number of people that we took out of the country, both through removals, you know, what, what are called deportations, and where we just returned people back to Mexico, it actually was a fraction of what it was a decade earlier. And the people we were taking out of the country through deportation were largely violent criminals and people who were caught crossing the border – We weren't removing law-abiding, regular, undocumented immigrants during that period. That was a huge change. Under Bush, anybody who was an undocumented immigrant in America could be deported at any time. And Obama changed that. And he said, if you're a law-abiding, undocumented immigrant without a criminal record, you're no longer a target for deportation. And in fact, the number of just regular, old, undocumented immigrants who were deported under Obama plummeted. And that's one of the reasons that Steve King, who's now in the news very much and people like Jeff Sessions, said that Obama was a lawbreaker, that he was breaking the law, that he wasn't following immigration law because he wasn't deporting everybody. And they wanted everybody deported. They didn't want just the border crossers and the violent criminals. And so the whole reason, the rationale, believe it or not, that Steve King created for the Republican party in 2014 to walk away from the Senate immigration bill, was Obama targeting violent criminals for deportation and not everybody. For those of us who study this issue, this is really important because I think that on balance, I think Obama did a very good job in our border management. We prioritized violent criminals and border crossers. The flow didn't increase even though the economy got better. And something really important happened is that while we sort of cracked down on the border and we, you know, moved violent criminals out of the country, trade with Mexico during the Obama administration more than doubled. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had more good things getting through, fewer bad things. It was a smart management of a very difficult challenge.
1: In 2016, Hillary Clinton's platform on immigration once again promised the introduction of a bill for comprehensive reform during her first 100 days. I interviewed her during the primaries, and I asked her if that was indeed realistic, given what the party had learned with Obama and a Republican-controlled Congress. She dodged the question, perhaps acknowledging that what she was suggesting was indeed, in many ways, just an empty promise, not because of her own commitment on the issue, but because of the political reality in Washington. Do you think it would have been preferable for her to admit to the difficulties of passing any sort of immigration reform instead of promising something that she knew she couldn't deliver? I asked this question thinking towards 2020 as well.
2: Yeah, listen, I think
1: the predicate
2: to this is that, you know, since Donald Trump arrived in the scene in June of 2015, immigration has been a central issue in our politics. And I think the Democrats have been, in my estimation, including Hillary Clinton, have ducked a little bit on the issue. I think this issue really matters to the country, and Donald Trump has made it even more important than it was before. And I think that we have a very sensible and thoughtful approach to the issue that has broad majority support. It's grounded in policy analysis. It has broad support in the Republican Party. We shouldn't be shy about being out there for our views and our arguments. And I think that sometimes it's been too easy for our party to sort of see this as a secondary issue where we want to talk about the things that really matter, health care and the economy and national security issues. But I think at this point, we have to recognize that resolving this issue and bringing it to a place of resolution is going to be a cathartic thing for the nation. We've been having a wrenching debate about this for too long. It's also central to sort of the rise of right-wing politics here in the United States and around the world. And so I think the Democrats really have to like belly up to the bar here, right, and say, we're going to roll up our sleeves and work with Trump and the Republicans to find common ground and resolution on this because the country needs it. It's the right thing for all of us. But that doesn't mean, by the way, abandoning our arguments and our beliefs. And I think what Nancy Pelosi is doing right now in the way that she's opposing Trump's ridiculous arguments about the wall is correct. We have to work with them, but we also don't have to give in and support bad ideas that are going to be harmful to the country. And so I think we're in a big debate, and I think we have to try to win it, not just show up.
1: I agree. In in a way, this sort of discussion about the possibility of immigration reform seems distant nowadays, even a bit naive, given the current awful scenario, because with the arrival of Donald Trump, the debate about immigration took a brutal turn for the worse. Trump took the issue and turned it into a dangerous nativist rallying cry that in the end proved to be, at least in part, sadly successful in 2016, at least, with a crucial part of the electorate. And once he had won the presidency, and I think few people understand this, Trump brought to power the most radical lineup of immigration hardliners imaginable. The horsemen of the apocalypse, for those of us who follow the immigration debate. I mean, no senator had been as radically opposed to comprehensive immigration reform as Jeff Sessions, for example. You've worked on the issue for years, Simon, almost decades. What do you make of what has happened? It's hard to overstate how
2: radical Donald Trump has been on this issue and how outside even mainstream Republican thought he has been on the issue. It's a great question. And I think where we are now is we're two years into this experiment with Trump's immigration policies, and they've clearly failed, right? We aren't seeing some mass exodus of undocumented immigrants out of the country. We're seeing now new problems that his immigration policies have created on both sides of the border today. I mean, it, we're, at, you know, we're having a, a culture war in the United States, which is incredibly unhealthy for, for all of us. And so I, I think that, that the reality that what's happened is we've tried their way for the last two years, and it doesn't work. And so I'm actually optimistic, Leon, that we're going to be able to get back to a place of reality on this issue in the next couple of years because we've tried, you know, they've been wanting to try this approach for a long time. They've been holding out this kind of, you know, the sort of Wizard of Oz immigration strategy where they try to scare everybody to leave the country, and it's not happening. And one of the reasons why is that most of the undocumented immigrants in the United States today have been here for a long time. And when you're long settled and you have a job and your kids are in school and you're, you know, you and your wife have friends and family, you know, in your community, right, you have no incentive to voluntarily leave if you're settled. I mean, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the efforts that Trump's, the horseman of the apocalypse you're talking about, they viewed this population as being sort of unsettled and they were wrong about this. I mean, virtually everything he has said about immigration in the United States in the beginning of his candidacy has been fundamentally wrong. Right? And so I think that where we are now is there's only two what the huge undocumented population we have in the country is breaking the system because what it means is if you get caught and you and somebody wants to deport you to get it, though you're going to get a court date six, seven, eight years from now. And it means that you're at that point when you go to court, you're a long settled immigrant in America. and, it, and these are people that you know, judges basically don't want to have them leave because they they have jobs and their family are settled. And we're going to have to clear this court backlog in one of two ways. We're either going to do it through the way that Trump has tried, which is to scare everybody into leaving, which hasn't worked. And the court backlog's actually gotten much longer during his presidency. Or we're going to legalize 11 million people. Mm -hmm. and clear the court backlog to allow us to more rapidly deport, you know, criminals and recent border crossers, which was the policy of the government before Donald Trump came in. And so it's my view that Donald Trump basically has eliminated his view now as a way of fixing the broken immigration system. And there's really only other one way to go, which is the way that most of the country and most and both political parties wanted to go before, which is some version of what we've called comprehensive immigration reform that includes legalization and citizenship for 11 million people once they've passed a background check and, you know, all the things that they have to do to get right with the law.
1: Let us explore a little bit the actual popularity of the nativist position in America currently, which I think is a crucial debate to have before we talk about what the Democratic Party can do uh, looking forward to 2020. So two years into his presidency, as, as we all know, Simon, and in the middle of this shutdown, Trump is increasingly unpopular, under 39% approval rating now. But some of the anti-immigrant measures he has taken maybe are not as unpopular, According to a recent Pew poll, 54% of Americans say building a wall would reduce illegal immigration, including 87% of Republicans. About one in three Americans under the age of 50 support building the wall, according to that same poll. The number of people polled who support the wall is now 42%, still a minority, but an eight-point jump from just a year ago. The people who strongly oppose the wall has fallen to 38% from 52% in just a year Three out of four Republicans say that the biggest problem the country faces is illegal immigration, a number that I find to be really baffling. Of course, now, there's evidence that proves the exact opposite to everything. Immigrants are peaceful, hardworking, pretty ideal Americans. But the numbers are the numbers. Do you think this is proof that Trump's nativism is proving to be at least a resilient narrative? Well,
2: it's a fascinating question the way you pose it because while all that is true, we also saw Steve King, who has been probably the single most important anti-immigrant political leader in our country in in elected office, be censored this week by his own party. And so what I'll say about the polling or the wall, let me just make one, one comment on that, is that we have a lot of wall. In the United States. I mean, it being for the, a wall on the border is common sense. We we actually have used it effectively. It's something that's been part of the tool set we've used to prevent bad things from getting into our country. And so support for a wall is neither a crazy belief or a deeply ideological one. It's what we already have. It's a question of the real debate, and that's why I don't really worry about the polling you're describing, because the debate we're having now really at this Point, despite everything that's gone on, this administration has not produced a single study, a single plan that explains why more wall is needed on top of what's already been built. Because wall is very expensive and it takes a long time to build. So the decision to add more wall is not a small thing because it means that you're using those resources and you're not doing other things like hiring more border patrol or shoring up the ports of entry. We don't have unlimited money in America, so we have to make smart choices. And so what's remarkable about where we are at this point is that they have no data showing that in the unwalled parts of the United States, there's been an increase of flow of people and drugs. There's no evidence that they've been able to provide that. And they've not even, by the way, sketched out where they want the wall to go. We don't even know what it is. And the thing is, a democracy can't work that way. I think if the president had come to the country and said, you know, here's a map of where I want the wall. Here's the reason why I want to add it. Here's how much it's going to cost. I think we'd be in a very different place. But they haven't done it. And the reason they haven't done it is because there is no data that exists that makes the case for why more wall is needed. The parts of the country that are unwalled are the places where nobody's going. And it's just an incredible sort of self-indulgent
1: waste of precious resources in the United States. Now, how do you reconcile that with the fact that the numbers that I threw at you, 87% of Republicans support the building of the wall. And and the fact that it is relatively popular, at least according to this poll, I go back to this number that I've been trying to wrap my head around the last few days, 42%. Is it just a powerful political symbol, this wall? Yeah, I think it's also just become a litmus test of support of him
2: in a time when he's suffering and his numbers are down and there's growing disappointment with him among, you know, critical parts of his base and that he's struggling that, you know, so they'll say, look, I'm for the wall. But, you know, hey, Donald, I don't want the government to be shut down. You know, I mean, people people can have both of those views at the same time. And as you and I have discussed before, Leon, is that being for something doesn't mean that people also believe it's important. And so, you know, for example, what's clear from the polling data is that it's a lot more important for his voters right now for him to reopen the government than it is for him to get his wall. And and that the wall is like a nice to have, not a must to have. People can be for it, but it doesn't mean it drives their vote or it's critical to how their opinion gets set. And so I think the wall is kind of an easy thing. And as I said, it's because we already have a lot of wall. I think this whole debate is so ill-informed and without context in many ways. So of course, the numbers on the wall are going to go up, but the wall, the numbers on the wall have gone up and his numbers have gone way down, which means that it really isn't that important to voters. There are other things that matter more to them about his performance and shutting the government down, making us look like a banana republic, doing it in a way where he has no obvious clear justification for why he's doing it, right, has caused him extraordinary harm. And so he's, look, he has spent the last year making this argument about the border central to his entire presidency. No one has probably leaned into an issue in the modern era of American politics more than Donald Trump has with the border. And in some of that polling, that same polling that you cite, questions of, do you think what's happening on the border is a crisis as opposed to, you want a wall? Which is in some ways a more important question. He was at 24% Mm-hmm. of voters. Half of his own voters don't believe that what's happening on the borders a crisis. So therefore, there's no reason to shut the government down. So he hasn't made the case.
1: Only 2% of people were persuaded after. His,
2: right, right. Uh, I mean, he hasn't made the case to his own voters that what he's doing, that the borders in crisis requires something as radical as shutting the government down. It also didn't help him in the election. So he has made a massive strategic mistake. By investing this amount of time and energy in an issue that just isn't – where he's not persuading people, he's not winning on it and -hmm. his numbers have gone way down. You know, it's clear in a conventional political world he should be cutting a deal with the Democrats right now and moving on to other things. But he's not a conventional politician.
1: There was another poll that worried me, a recent Reuters poll that asked the voters, what's the issue that makes you angriest? And for Republicans, again, illegal immigration. And we know how important emotional issues are nowadays in politics worldwide. In any case, Simon, I would imagine you would agree that immigration will be front and center during both the Democratic primary and the general election in 2020.
2: Well, it will be because Donald Trump will make it, and and I think that Democrats have to be smarter about getting out ahead and defining their positions and being aggressive. I mean, I'm I worked for the Bill Clinton's War Room in 1992, and we had the basic premise of that War Room is that if you don't rebut attacks and if you don't deal with debates head on, that you know these attacks can stick. And I think Democrats have, frankly, given Trump too much leeway on immigration. Mm-hmm. We haven't really adequately rebutted what are mostly fallacious arguments. He's been making both about the border and the nature of the Amer- the American experience and the immigration. I mean, look, it's amazing to me that Trump says the economy is the best it's ever been. But Im- all this immigration we've had has been really bad, right? Both of those things can't be true. And I mean, obviously, one of the reasons the economy is better than it's ever been is because we've had this extraordinary wave of industrious – hardworking immigrants. And so I you know I I think we've got to take on the basic narrative that he's laid out mm-hmm. which is this wave of immigration has made the country weaker and take it head on and and defeat it in this next election because it's the core I mean I think America's never been stronger today than we are other than you know absent the Trump presidency and I think we are stronger today we're an economic powerhouse we're, we remain a geopolitical powerhouse uh, largely to a great degree because of the immigration that we've had. And I think that Democrats can make that argument and then talk about also, you know, our plan for what we want to do to make the immigration system even, you know, better. We've, ha- we've been, as you've mentioned, we've been for reform for a long time. We've had strong ideas. I think what's happening now is different. We need a new set of plans. And I think our candidates are capable of doing that in 2020.
1: If the debate about immigration will indeed play a considerable role in next year's election, and I think it will, the Democratic Party faces a real challenge. And I want to talk to you about that. It's still early, but none of those who have either declared their intention to run or those who have hinted that they will have that intention to run have shown anything close to a detailed workable set of immigration policies. Julian Castro, for example, who one could, uh, could imagine easily leading the debate on this issue, came out of the gate denouncing Trump's policies. But Offering few ideas of his own, I mean, we heard that rebuttal, but few new ideas. And Democrats face a predicament that's certainly not exclusive to American politics either. I think of what's happening in Europe, for example, where central-left parties are trying to find a way to fight populist movements and anti-immigrant sentiment. The question is actually a fascinating and complicated one. I mean, stand up for immigration and risk alienating white voters who have chosen to favor the anti-immigrant movement, or instead try to appeal to those voters again with some sort of populist platform against trade, more open borders, and the like. How do you resolve that debate, Simon? It's a very complicated question.
2: No, but it's the central, in many ways, it's the central question of that facing the politicians in the West today, right, in both Europe and here. In the United States, and I think that our experience in the U.S. is with immigration and these issues is different than Europe. So let me just talk about the U.S. Is that I, I think we have to have we're having this debate, so let's have it right. Let's let's make our positions clear as day. Right, the president says we're for open borders, and yet our own party believed our president was a deporter in chief. I mean, we 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 have to make clear that what we want is a rational and sensible immigration system. And we have to defend our arguments, I think, more forcefully. I also think we're going to have to develop a new agenda around immigration because circumstances have changed. There's been erosion of economic opportunity and security in Central America in the last few years. That's made things different than they were. Trump's own failed immigration policy has made immigration different than it was, and so we can't go back to the old kind of comprehensive immigration reform framework only that we had a few years ago. We need to react to the changes that have that are in front of us, and I and so I do think that it is critical, and I hope that Democrats really understand the significance of this. We, along with our brethren in Europe, both center right parties and and center left parties in Europe. Have to wrestle this these sets of issues around modernity and immigration, and um, what you know Bannon calls cultural pollution, right? Together, and and to really defend the West and to shore up you know the liberal values that have done so much to bring an unprecedented period of peace and prosperity throughout the entire world. This has been the greatest period to be alive in all of human history over the last seventy to eighty years, and it's because of the liberal approach of the West. And and so I think we have a lot to defend here. It's We're struggling today. These things happen, right? But I think we're not going to win by sort of not leaning into the debate. And I think the stakes on this debate both in 2020 and, and here in the United States and in Europe are very high. And I would like to see more intensity and vigor for the Democrats to lean into this to sort of win this debate once and for all mm-hmm. and for us to show that we actually really have a sensible plan and that the country is moving forward And I just don't think we're going to win the debate unless we enter it forcefully and try to win it.
1: So you don't envision any scenario in which the Democratic Party, for example, moves to the center on immigration, similar to what Hillary Clinton did controversially in Europe recently while speaking about immigration policy?
2: I think she was wrong about that, by the way. It's interesting. I'm a Clinton person and I'm a big fan. I, I thought that was a, what she said was the words of a defeated politician and not a thoughtful global leader. I, I think that was a huge mistake by her. And Look, I think there's three things we should be talking about right now as Democrats about what we want to do on the immigration system. First is that we need a new regional approach to Central America to shore up the security and and. Economic prosperity of struggling Central American countries, we can do this with our Mexican partners and potentially even some in South America. This is a major initiative. Uh, uh, Vice President Biden began this effort at the end of the Obama administration. It was insufficient. It's been abandoned completely by the current administration. It's inevitable that we're going to have to go there, right? We've already seen with Mexico that with uh, you know mo- economic modernization, lower birth rates, right? I mean Mexico's not producing the same flow of undocumented immigrants into our country that they were uh, a decade ago. Second is that we do need a plan to fix the immigration system. We have one, CIA so yeah, is comprehensive immigration reform. We are going to fight for legalization not just of the dreamers but for all 11 million. I think you know that's something we should stick to. And third is that we ha- also now have to deal with the very specific set of problems that Trump has created. <laughs> you know, these large d- numbers of people who are being detained, the issue now that he's raising with asylum, these are new challenges that need a little bit of new thinking about how we're going to deal with this. And I think that going back to the old system where people were released to their families, uh, you know, given the volume of asylum seekers with kids, these are new challenges. The laws changed in the latter part of the la- – la- I mean where I agree with Kirsten Nielsen and there's virtually nowhere that I agree with her. What she- What she's been saying recently is that, you know, laws were changed a decade ago and they've made it – we don't really know how to deal with this family asylum seekers and the large number of children that are coming. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous. All that is true. And I think a lot of thinking has to go into now about what, how we really want to deal with the new challenge of immigration, which isn't mass illegal migration. It's it's families making dangerous journeys uh, that we don't want them making and, and how we how we manage that. And our system doesn't deal with it well once they come here. And certainly by preventing them from seeking asylum and keeping them in dangerous and dirty places on the Mexican border is also not a solution. And so I think we should be, I think this is going to require our family, who's been very creative about meeting other challenges, to really do some big
1: thinking on this as well. Let me explore a couple of those specific topics in more detail. Do you believe something as ambitious as, say, a Marshall Plan for Central America could gain traction, support during a campaign? I'm thinking about the primaries, but also the general election. Or is it a losing proposition, electorally speaking? I mean, I'm imagining the Democratic candidate talking about investing billions of dollars in Central America during a presidential debate. Do you think that's actually a winning proposition, again, electorally speaking, not morally speaking, electorally speaking?
2: I do in if it's framed, I will tell you I've read dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of polls about immigration over the last fifteen years, and the polling is remarkably static in many ways in that there's about fifteen percent of people on the right that want all these dark skinned colored people to leave the country right and are angry about how um, the country has ethnically and racially changed. Then there's a bunch of people on our side, right, who are for very, very liberal open, you know, uh, immigration policy. But the vast majority of the country, 70 to 80 percent of the country, really doesn't care that much about this issue, truthfully. I mean, they care more about, you know, making a living every day and having good health care and good schools and making sure America's safe, right? This is a secondary issue for most Americans. And what they want is they want it fixed. And so if our – they think it's ridiculous and they think it's a dis, it's another sign of the dysfunction of our political system that we've been unable to wrestle this issue to the ground, right, over the last 15 years. And so for those voters in the middle or, or wherever they are who are just not as passionate as others, what they want more than anything else is a sensible plan that's really going to fix the problem. And that's why I think we have to come out of the box with something – that isn't poll tested, but that is actually rigorous in the in the sense that if we implement it, it's really going to fix it's going to make things better in this country. And and I'll give you one example, Leon, right? I mean, the the CBO estimates, if we had passed CIR, was that, you know, legalizing these millions and millions of workers would raise their wages. It would bring more money into the Treasury and lower the budget deficit. It would be an economic stimulus by legalizing millions and millions of workers that are already here we can sell the plan that i just laid out i really believe it i think we can sell it around the idea that we're not playing politics here we want to fix the broken immigration system we want to allow the country to move on to other challenges here's our three part plan you know at the end of this and and frankly given the costs that we you know we spend 30 billion dollars a year 30 to 35 billion dollars a year on border Security. If we can spend a couple billion a year to make sure that far fewer people are coming, Mm -hmm. that's a prudent way of spending money, right? Far smarter than building wall that's unneeded. So I think we can make this case. And I'll go back to one stat for you, right? I go back to this. You raised a bunch of statistics. In the 2016 election, according to the exit polls, uh, one of the questions that was asked is basically, do you want these undocumented immigrants to go home or to stay? Right? And seventy percent of Americans in that election said they want them to stay. only twenty five percent said they want them to go. And so I think we can win this argument, but we have to have a realistic, prudent, and smart plan that will convince people that this thing's really going to work and make things better and put this this incredibly contentious issue behind us.
1: I agree with you that we shouldn't be overly dramatic. The United States is still a welcoming country for immigrants, and there are studies that prove it. There are, I mean, a long, long list of other countries that look at immigrants with far more suspicion than the United States. But we have seen, for example, Simon, an increase in hate crimes. How should the Democratic Party change the narrative about immigrants or counter the narrative about what immigrants have been for the United States? Should the identity of the candidate, him or herself, play a role in this? I think that's a really important question, and I spoke to it earlier a little bit.
2: But I think that this is my whole point. Like, we have to confront the fallacious arguments. The the central core narrative of the Trump presidency is that there are these dangerous, dark-skinned people who've come into the country and who are going to get you, right? Like, and and are unsafe and are taking your jobs, and they're illegitimate in their presence here, and they also have made the country far less safe. But we all know the truth of this, Right. During this period of mass migration we've had into the United States, the crime rate has been cut in half, right? Well, do, we know we know? That... do we all know the truth about this? No, no, but we have to – the people aren't going to know the truth. You and I know the truth. The people yes. that have studied this. Does the public know the truth? No, in fact, they don't. I can show you polling showing that despite the massive de- decline in crime, Americans don't know that that's taken place, right? Right. Uh, I can show you a point. Do Americans know that undocumented immigrants commit crimes at a far lower rate than native borns? Of course they don't. Do they know that immigrants to the United States have the same percentage of immigrants have college degrees as people who are native born? No, they don't know any of this. I mean, so I do think my point to you is that my fundamental argument is we just can't duck this anymore. It's who we're becoming, right? We've had this period of extraordinary migration. Into America. You know, we've absorbed as many immigrants in the United States since the 1950s as the entire current population of the United Kingdom. This is a huge event that's happened in our country. And I think that it's made us better and stronger and more capable and more able Mm -hmm. to adapt to the modern challenges of the world. And I'm not scared about having that debate. I think the data is on our side. And I think we also, though, have to recognize that along with this, though, is we have to have a very vigorous, set of arguments about what are we going to do for the people who are being left behind by these huge changes and and I think that both of these things can can be done and I think one of the ways we can do that as we look to 2020 is you know certainly the efforts we've made to give everyone in America health care is something that's really important if you Think about you know just the ability to ensure that you've got health coverage no matter where you work or what your job is or you lose your job. That's a big offering I think we can make. We just shouldn't call it Obamacare anymore. But anyway, there's, there's a broad agenda that we have to have. We can do both of these things. And I just don't think we should be scared of this fight. We're not going to win it, though. We're not going to win the debate unless we have the debate, unless we lean into the debate. I think that there's a strong argument to be made that Hillary ducked on these issues in 2016, did not adequately engage and debunk what Trump was saying. And certainly, I don't think we've been doing it over the last two years. After what's happened in the last few weeks, I don't think we have any choice now. I think this debate is going to be with us for the next two years. Mm -hmm. We can win this debate, but we got to lean into it and try to win it, not just try to do a good job.
1: Finally, Simon, who do you think would be uh, particularly successful on immigration? Is there any particular candidate who could have a relevant voice on immigration? And should the party take that into consideration? The party's voters take that into consideration when selecting the 2020 ticket or not?
2: I will be honest. You know, I don't have a candidate in this race. And I think the Democrats are going to have an extraordinary number of really impressive people to choose from. And I'm excited to see how this primary plays out. But I will tell you that I thought that Beto O'Rourke's over the last, I, I hope he runs. I, I don't know that he will. I hope he does. Um, and I think because no one will be more effective at making the argument that I'm talking about so far than he will be to me. I mean, I think he's been the most articulate. He's from one of the two biggest border cities in America, El Paso del Norte, right? It's been a place of of, uh, a transit point between cultures for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, right, going all the way back to the the 16th and 17th century. Um, And I think his fluency in these issues, his comfort, his, frankly, his courage in taking this on, I think even in the way that he's talked about it over the last few weeks, uh, has been incredibly impressive to me, honestly. I mean, I didn't have a strong opinion about this. But I think certainly he, whether he wins or loses, if he shows up, I think he will give the Democratic Party language and a place to go on these issues. That's uh, that's very powerful. I, I also obviously, obviously um, you know, former HUD Secretary Castro, I think will also be powerfully articulate. But my view is that all the Democrats will probably end up being, you know, very competent on this in part because of what's happening right now. It's impossible as you're preparing to run for president to not be giving a great deal of thought about how you're handling the wall and the border and immigration because of what's happening in our own country right now. So I think it's going to force sort of an, uh, an evolution of thought and consideration. The way these presidential – I've worked in two of these campaigns. You know, campaigns have to evolve organically and there are some issues that go through further thought processes faster than others based on outside circumstances. What I think this will do, the border fight, is going to make the level of competency of all the Democratic candidates on these issues of border and immigration far greater, faster than it would have been otherwise, because they have to, because it's something that everybody's talking about. And in that sense, I think that whoever our nominee is, it's going to be a position that will be heavily informed and not something that's on the periphery of the debate. It will come about through intense, spirited, informed debate, which is really what we want, I think, out of our democracy.
1: Simon Rosenberg leads NDN, a center-left think tank. He has been a thoughtful and leading voice on immigration for over 15 years now. Simon, thank you very much. Really appreciate it, Leon. Keep up the good work. That's the show for today. Tell us what you think. We're on Twitter. I'm at Leon Krause, L-E-O-N-K-R-A-U-Z-E, and the show is always at Trumpcast. And before we sign off, I would like to ask you to sign up for Slate Plus. It's $35 for the first year. That's just under $3 per month, and it gets you all of Slate Podcasts ad-free. Go to slate.com slash trumpcastplus. That's slate.com slash trumpcastplus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan, with help from marie Elena Ochoa. John Di Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. Find him at D 23 on Twitter, I'm Leon Krause. Thanks again for listening to Trumpcast.